Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. With service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome in once again to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Thank you guys so much for joining us. A couple of notes before we get to this week's guest. I want to remind you guys about our promotion, our partnership with Amazon. Go to our website, hazardground.com. A lot of great stuff on the website. Former guests, pictures, bios, things of that information. But right in the middle of our homepage on hazardground.com is a box that says Amazon.com on it. I want you to click on that box. I want you to do all your normal Amazon shopping. Whatever you spend, we'll get a percentage of. We take that percentage and donate it right back to some of the charities you've heard featured here on the Hazard Ground podcast. So just by doing your Amazon shopping through HazardGround.com, you'll be helping out bets all over the country. Great stuff for you. Reminder, follow us on all the social media sites, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, Hazard Ground, Hazard Ground podcast. Keep up with everything we have going on in the show, including the guests featured each week. Speaking of guests, we'd love to hear from you you guys. Send us an email at producer at hazardground.com, producer at hazardground.com. If you know anybody who's got a great story to tell, a story you'd like to hear featured here on the Hazard Ground, send us an email. Again, producer at hazardground.com, and we'll try to get him featured here on the show as a guest. There's nothing better that we like than telling the stories of America's heroes and America's servicemen and women. So again, love to hear from you guys. Any comments you have, producer at hazardground.com. Speaking of comments, go to iTunes, leave us a rating and a review. Doesn't have to be a long review. Just tell us what you like about the show or what you don't like. Uh, leave us a rating as well. That helps grow the show, the popularity of the show, and continues to get us bigger and better sponsors and bigger and better guests. So do your part, guys. Help us out. We know you love the show, and we certainly appreciate you being part of the Hazard Ground family. Now on to this week's episode. Joining us this week, a very special guest who I actually had the honor of serving under in Iraq as he did one of three tours there. He originally started his career in the 75th Ranger Regiment, had more than 200 jumps with paratroopers and rangers. He went on to do three tours in Iraq as well. He went on to achieve the rank of Lieutenant General, where he had several high-level commands in the U.S. Army, and he is retired Lieutenant General Mike Farrador joining us on the Hazard Ground. Sir, welcome. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you this morning, and hello to everybody. Uh, Very extensive resume. I know I couldn't get it all in, but one thing I did leave out, and I want to get into this because I find this is really important and transformative. For those who don't know, General Farrader is responsible for bringing combatives to the Army, Uh, and and I have to personally say thank you for that because it's one of those skills that I think we're a better Army for. We're better trained. We're we're better soldiers. We're tougher, Uh, and without that, I think you know this force is definitively missing uh, a key component of it. And as the war on terror continues, those skills are more and more important uh, in everything that we do. So we'll get into the combatives part of thing uh, and wh- how your role in that developed. But let's start all the way back to the beginning, sir. And I know 35 plus years uh, ago, but how did you get into the army and why? Well, I grew up in an army family and uh, we traveled around. I moved about 18 times in my first 18 years. And my dad uh, started as a private in World War II he went to officer candidate school and then he retired out in California with my mom and brothers and sisters. Uh, he retired as a Colonel. And, and, uh, and so, um, we were in, in, uh, Carmel and Monterey, California. And my dad said, uh, why don't you take a look at going to the school called the Citadel in Charleston. And he had served underneath the, the then serving president. And he, and I said, well, I really want to play baseball down in Santa Barbara with my buddies. And he said, well, why don't you just take a look at the Citadel? You have a scholarship there. And I said, well, I might go to Sac- Sacramento state and play basketball with my buddies there. And he said, why don't you take a look at the Citadel? And I said, well, okay, I'll, I'll give it a try. And I, and I figured I would be in the army. I, I watching uh, the army of Europe back during Vietnam and watching the army as I grew up, I just could see men and women of character who really were prideful and felt great about their service and, and, uh, and they felt great about the people they were with. So I thought, well, I'll give that a try. It can't, you know, can't be too bad. And, uh, so I went, went to school in Charleston at the Citadel on an army ROTC scholarship and was commissioned. I asked for infantry and, and received infantry, um, in 1979 I was commissioned and, uh, and so that's that's pretty much um, and and I thought and I even had friends twenty years later saying 
you know, do you have to serve 20 years in the, in the army to pay back four years of college? And I said, <laughs> no, at, at this point I'm doing it cause I love it. And, uh, but that's pretty much how I got into it. Interesting because, you know, at the time you were doing this, there's kind of like this post Vietnam lamaze about the military and America in general. And your dad went to world war two. And after seeing what happened in Vietnam, there was never any talk of, you know, don't go in the military, you know, look what happens and everything. I mean, it was always just, he wanted you to do this. Well, you know, I've got uh, a couple brothers and sisters, and, and uh, we were all pretty much allowed to to pursue what our heart was all about. So my oldest sister's still a hippie in New Mexico, <laughs> and uh, my older brother's a producer and director on Broadway. Um, my next oldest sister, almost an Irish twin, 13 months older, is a wonderful person and a great lawyer in, in Sacramento. And my younger brother's a Hollywood agent. And so, um, so my mom said, don't clap when you have little ones because they'll go into the arts, you know, make them do work and they'll go into the military. So I'm the one that uh, followed in the family, uh, my father's footsteps. Interesting. Okay. So as you uh, start the beginning of your career, um, you know, what's, what's standing out to you when you look back on it? Because I, I think at that time, correct me if I'm wrong, you didn't know you were going to do 20 years. You were kind of just doing what you were supposed to do at that point in time and fill the commitment. Or did you feel like you were going to do 20 years at that point in time? Um, you know, the way I would tell everyone they should live their life in the way that I thought I lived mine is, you know, I was going to serve um, and I would stay in the military until it was either uh, no longer um, rewarding where I couldn't make a difference for people or where I was asked to compromise my integrity. I, I said, I'll walk out, you know, whether I'm a lieutenant or lieutenant general. It doesn't matter to me. What's important is that, you know, we end up with our faith and our family and our friends and our integrity all intact, whether we serve three years or 35 years. And so, yeah, I, I thought I'd probably go four years and then go to law school. Uh, that's what I thought. And, uh, um, uh, that I never never took door number three. I stayed right there. So as you're developing as a young lieutenant, and again, you chose the infantry. I mean, was it just because of the physical nature of it? Did you know what you were getting into at the time? Well, I, I think we, we know what probably we're getting into. And uh, I just wanted to be, you know, the main be with the main thing. You know, the, the main thing is the, the combat arms and in particular, hundred yards of any fight as an infantryman's and so i i wanted to be with the people who you know who thought that that's where they could make a difference either in peace or in war and uh, and then then you start to learn and develop and grow and you really learn more about what what everything is and as you say so you end up in the 75th ranger regiment um one of the most elite you know units in all, all of the army was that by happenstance or did you want to go there yeah, I, I think um, I was raised to, you know, um, go seek the next challenge. And uh, and, I, and I certainly believe that even today. And, uh, you know, the uh, so I served in the mechanized infantry at Fort Riley. And then I went up to parachute infantry in uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. And I said, so what's the next step? And they said, well, there's the stuff called the, the Ranger Battalions. There's one at Fort Lewis, and there's one um, at Fort Benning, and there's there's one in, in Augusta or in Savannah, Georgia. And so, you know, kind of naively, I just called down there and said, "Hey, how do you get in?" And uh, they said, "Oh, that, that'll never happen. You know, you gotta know three special people, and you you know have to have a ranger tattoo at birth, and all that kind of stuff." And and so, I think one of the lessons in life also is be really good at rejecting rejection. So I, I said, okay, well, I'll call you back. And, uh, so I, you know, put in, uh, the paper packet and got the recommendation or two. And, and then it, I called them and they said, Hey, I'm glad you called back because, uh, some guy we thought we had dropped out and we have a slot. If you can fly down from Alaska to Fort Lewis, we'll do interviews next week. And, and so, uh, the lesson there is you got to move on opportunity. Um, and you got to take risk. And so I did. And, and uh, that uh, started me off on, on the next, you know, 11, 12, 13 years of, uh, of, of my Army tour back and forth between the 82nd Airborne Division and the Ranger Regiment. 
I, I've said this for years, sir, and obviously you know this, but it's weird how the or- army always has a way of putting you where you're supposed to be. If you just sort of hang around long enough, it's whether it's serendipity or you know just good fortune or whatever, it's it, it's just one of those things where somehow the army always finds a place that you fit in well. Absolutely, and and it may not be the place when you know we have my wife Margie and I have been married you know some forty years now, and, and uh, um, you know everywhere we went, we thought, oh, you know, we're not everywhere, but many places that we went, was like, oh, I don't know about this, and then you find out this was awesome, and the people there were awesome too. All right, so I know it's hard to kind of go quickly through 35 years with, without getting stuck in too much of, of, of the minutia, but uh, obviously you're progressing in rank and going along. I do want to fast forward a little bit to Somalia because uh, it's a story we've recounted a lot here on the podcast. Uh, where are you prior to um, you know things in Somalia kicking off? What's your assignment, and how eventually do you end up there? I was the, uh, the Battalion S3 of uh, Third Ranger Battalion. Um, most people don't, don't talk about it, but, um, so Somalia was, was, uh, 3 October, you know, 1993, uh, 29 October, 1992, we had a horrible, uh, helicopter crash on a special operation mission that killed two of the Ranger battalions. I was a major, I was the ops officer. And so, uh, the backdrop of Somalia is that John Keneally, great, great leader that he was, was killed. And then Danny McKnight was rushed into into the Ranger Battalion to, to backfill him. And so we we trained uh, through that winter, got ready, went on block leave in July and came back for another big special operation mission at Fort Bliss, Texas. And we got word that uh, there was killing in the streets of this place called Mogadishu and the first part of our special operations task force um, was going to go forward. And so... Colonel McKnight and one Ranger company, Bravo company, went forward with uh, other special operators from Task Force Ranger. I stayed behind and continued the training, ready to bring Alpha Company forward. Um, and that was August 15th. And then uh, a couple weeks later, um, on a Sunday morning, we got word there was big fighting in the streets. And so we were alerted and I, I carried uh, Alpha Company forward. And we arrived time-wise um, as things had had just completed on the big fight that you see in in the movie Black Hawk Down, so I, I'm also ready and proud to tell everyone uh, two things. One is I, I arrived after the big fighting, um, but uh, number two, you know, we trained, and it, any other unit uh, in the army might have been killed to the man uh, on that day, October third, had it not been Rangers in that fight, and. Uh, so proud of, of what we did to get them ready and then proud to come back about two years later and be their their commander. But uh, that's how I ended up there. We stayed for um, another month and a half or so, and then we were withdrawn. And uh, it's a, a notable beginning of the this uh, war, on, uh, war on terror back in 93. Interesting to know, sir. Matt Eversman actually is a friend of mine, and he was the first ever guest here on the podcast. So... Uh, he tells the story just you know beautifully, obviously with with all of its uh, good and bad that goes with it. Let me ask you just from a, a standpoint because you know somebody in your position when you get to your career, you're always charged with looking back and and evaluating what went right and what went wrong. Even though you weren't there for the fighting, I'm sure you sat in on some of those discussions and everything else. What are your takeaways from the whole thing? Um, first is uh, train the way you fight, right? So. Um, these ad hoc uh, thrown together organizations usually are going to leave some gaps. And uh, if, if you're going to ad hoc an organization and take pieces, parts, then you better account for that uh, by way of understanding the risk. So what I'm saying is we always train as a Ranger Battalion with a Ranger Battalion staff. And then we sent the Colonel forward with no, no help. And, uh, and so then that, that can impact when and how they launch on a mission um, how their supervision went during that the time the couple days before and why they had some gear and they didn't have other gear and what intel was provided to them since the ranger intel was left behind and it, and it was more of a, a, a conglomeration of intel from multiple sources so that's a, that's the big thing train the way you fight and uh, train for the fight that you're going to be in the positive takeaways are you know rugged tough training pays off 
yeah. rangers and soldiers shooting their weapons confidently in peacetime so that they can shoot confidently when in combat it really pays off teaching self-aid buddy aid first aid really pays off and those those training things we did saved many lives there were of, of about 80 rangers in the streets probably 69 were wounded and uh, and we lost six and so um a lot of a lot of the good hard training and then this never quit attitude that great soldiers have and and our whole army was after you know some 18 years of uh time in, in uh, combat zones is so good today for before that and those that that talk about you know um the army and its equipment's worn out well that's that's true but our people are are well trained and they're super smart and they're super get after it kind of men and women. So, so those, those, those things are, are really what carried into the great nineties and, and right into nine 11. And then, um, as Rangers populate the army and as their techniques uh, populated the army and the Marines, then we had better fighting men and women. Major General Garrison, who was in charge of the whole entire thing, for those who don't know, he was the, the, the kind of OIC on the ground, if you will, in charge of everything of Task Force Ranger. After it was over, he took blame for the entire thing. Was he right to do that, or was he just doing what he was supposed to do as far as a guy in charge? And again, I'm asking your opinion. I'm not asking for doctrine. I'm just kind of curious to get your thoughts and feelings on it. He's a great man. Um, he uh, Did he deserve to take all the blame for it? Well... No, no, not at all. But, it, um, you know, what's the blame? You know, the blame is they got in a huge fight. And the blame is we went into a country to get after some guy. And uh, the blame is reinforcements came in and the fight got even bigger. And and uh, God bless each of the Rangers and the other special operators and their families. Um, but Gordon and Shugart went down the rope because, because they were courageous and valorous men. They received the Medal of Honor for that. Um, you know, the way I look at it is, you know, when when you ask soldiers to go somewhere on behalf of this country, soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, and Coast Guard, you know, make sure you want something done because because the, these patriots are going to go go do it, and they believe that our leaders put them there for the right reason. And he's just a noble person to say, you know, my goal was to go come here accomplish the mission and bring everyone back alive and unhurt. And it's my fault for anyone that got hurt. And that's, that's what a, a noble leader does. I think the bigger picture is, you know, we put together uh, the most amazing team and, and they, they fought essentially six battles. And the last one was, was a bloody one in particular. And, uh, and that's the business that, that we're in. Well said, sir. Well said. Okay. Um, you were a major at the time, um, and this is 92, so it's you know nine years later before 9-11 happens. Um, kind of give me, just fill in the gap in that portion of your career. Yeah, really interesting. Um, so uh, after that, we got ready for Haiti, and uh, um, we were all rigged up to parachute into Haiti and, and uh, take care of business in, in that part of the world. And then uh, a couple of people went down there and talked to uh, Aristide out of the fight, and so then we just really moved in sort of an occupation force to help stabilize the at, at that moment. Um, it was about 94, and then I went to the 82nd Airborne Division and was a parachute battalion commander of the 504th, 2nd Battalion, 504th White Devils, and just a great unit, great people, great leaders who today we're all still in contact. Um, and then uh, the way it works is if you have a successful uh, company command and then later successful battalion command then you go before uh, board to be selected to be a ranger battalion commander a second command so I was, I was selected for third ranger battalion and then um, in another two great years of, uh, of, of time with the rangers there and then um, selected to go to the Fletcher School of Long Diplomacy in Boston as a national defense fellow for a year, and I really wanted to get my family up into New England, where the kids could play soccer up there, um, the the Southeast uh, soccer, and uh, and then selected for the training command, and and that was a really, you know, hurtful, like, you know, almost. Uh, do they know what who they're dealing with? I'm, you know, I should be 
Mr. Superman. Mm-hmm. And uh, as you said, the Army figures it out. And uh, just prior to leaving the Ranger Battalion, I met Hoist Gracie and Horian Gracie. And we brought them into 3rd Ranger Battalion to teach a thing called we, that we coined the term combatives. And so when I got, and which was hand-to-hand fighting for your visit, your listeners there. And, and uh, so at that point, no one in the Army hardly uh, could fight with their hands other than, you know, local brawlers. <laughs> and so we, so uh, we learned what, what is known as Gracie Jiu-Jitsu uh, and ground fighting. And then when I re- returned as a colonel to this training command, the infantry leaders brigade, I would say, the 11th Infantry Regiment, which had airborne school, the basic course, captain's career course, officer candidate school, and uh, really oversight of the NCO Academy. I was I was asked to go up and see General Abrams, who was out commander, and he, he felt that our lieutenants were getting soft, and that a lot of Bosnia, Kosovo time, a lot of, you know, what we now call FOB time, Ford operating base, you know, sleeping on cots. He said, I want you to rewrite the basic course for officers, and I want you to scuff them up. And I told him, all right, sir, I'm good at scuffing things up, so I'll be glad to do that. <laughs> so, so I saw the opportunity to, to bring combatives to the Army through that, through that doorway. Did you agree with his assessment? Sorry to interrupt, sir. Did you agree with this assessment? I mean, obviously you've been at this for 15, 20 years at this point. Did you agree that, that we were getting softer? You know, um, it's a kind of two part answer. One is, you know, we, we have leaders in charge of people. And so if, if someone's not meeting a standard, then the leader needs to look in the mirror, you know, and, and so they're responsible for, uh, passing on the traditions, maintaining the standards. Um, that said, sometimes you get into this kind of, uh, you know, uh, it's kind of routine where it's just harder to do PT. It's just harder to do the field craft and sleep in the woods in the rain. It's, you know, the, the conditions of the work where you've been assigned make it a little more difficult. That said, I think it's weak, weak excuse to, for a leader to say, I can't train my people. So anyways, you know, in life, it's what you do about it. So now I'm in a place where maybe I can do something about it. Sure. And then, and then you, you have to get good at, at, uh, fighting through the bureaucracy or rejecting rejection. So first they said, well, you can't train combatives because it's not in our hand to hand fighting manual, which was written in the 1940s. And so me, Matt Larson and, and Troy Thomas rewrote the hand to hand fighting manual. And they said, well, you can't do training because it's not in the program, the POI, the program of instruction for the courses. So we rewrote the courses. And then they said, well, you can't do combatives because you don't have certified instructors. So we created an instructor certification program. (laughs) And then they said, you can't do it because you don't have a facility. And so I traded a guy about a bunch of MREs that were in the basement of OCS. He's a deer hunter for the book warehouse at Fort Benning. And then we created the Academy, the first Academy. And, uh, and so, um, those were all thrown away MRE. So there's no, uh, no misuse of government property there. Right. And, and anyways, <laughs> you know, so we re- repurposed this building. We went and uh, bought maps and put them on the ground and, and created the, the first, what they call Thunderdome. And so, and so then we started training OCS and the basic course and the NCO courses. And then, um, those were the apostles that went out to the army to say, I am certified to train my platoon. And that's how this, you know, never quit attitude of keep pushing the wave, keep pushing, keep pushing. And so Matt Larson is often called and should be called the, the father of army combatives. If he's the father, then I'm the godfather. And so whenever people try to squash it <clears throat> or say there's a problem with it, then even now as a retired general, I'll roll back in and help them understand why we have to keep doing it. Because at that moment of truth, we we need that soldier to be looking at the enemy instead of looking back for a sergeant to help him. Well said again, sir. Um, how long does this whole process take years-wise? Because the bureaucracy of the military, as you know, <laughs> it, it can be lengthy. Yeah, well... Um, <clears throat> that command was two years, and then um, a few years later, 
you know, then, then I'm a general officer. So now at the 82nd, <clears throat> I'm asking <clears throat> aid and battalion commanders, why aren't they once a week doing this? And so then this great unit starts doing it more and more. It's also interesting that the younger officers and the younger, you know, the specialist sergeant and staff sergeant, they really love it. Yeah, And absolutely. then the, the sergeant majors and the colonels are afraid to get choked out or tapped out by some, you know, young troop. And so in time, those staff sergeants grew up to be platoon sergeants and first sergeants and now command sergeant majors. And so, you know, how, how did we get it cemented? It's really we, we train the base and let them grow into it. And then we shame all the older folks that are afraid to get on the mats. You know, they'll the, generally they'll run PT. They'll certainly shoot a sniper rifle with a soldier. But will they get on the mats and roll around with them? That's the – for some reason, there's just a little bit of ego in there. And what you really figure out about uh, hand-to-hand fighting and is it makes you more aware of yourself, more aware of things that are going on in an attitude towards this may be tough, but I've seen tough before. I can get through this. And now we have people who are, can confidently, you know, move, move through so many situations to include life in the barracks, life after barracks. You know, it, it's a huge, you know, sexual harassment and sexual assault, uh, you know, uh, minimizer for our, our guys and girls. It's just, a, it's just, and it's a super workout. I, I still train. I'm a black belt in Brazilian Jiu Jitsu now, and I'm a professor at an academy in Tacoma and work out here in Columbus, Ohio and teach, you know, even now. So it's a lifelong thing. You know, sir, again, you and I talked before we started recording. For those who don't know, I served under General Ferder uh, in my second deployment to Iraq. And I remember distinctly while you were in the green zone that, uh, there was there's video of you with somebody doing jujitsu on a mat somewhere. I had no idea where it was, but but I saw a video of you and going through all this stuff, and I'm like, damn, that's a that's a three star general right there, just rolling around on the mat. And now it all makes sense because you were at the top. I didn't know that until you know I started reading up on your background, but now it all makes sense that you were at the. Uh, the tip of the spear, so to speak, for all that. So again, I, listen, just two cents from me. I, I think it's it's incredible. Uh, we are a better force for it, and and you know, thank you for having the foresight and the, and the determination to make sure that uh, it's part of what what we're training soldiers to do. It's it's incredibly important, and as, as I said, it makes us a better force. So uh, to that end, um, you know, thank you again, and, and we'll move on. But where are you on nine eleven? What are you doing, and and what happens on that day? Yeah, well, I, I had just reported uh, into Norfolk, North, uh, Virginia to what was called Joint Forces Command, working for Army uh, General Buck Kernan. And uh, these joint commands have Army, Navy, Air Force, and Marines. And so I arrived, uh, gosh, right at the end of uh, August. What rank are you at this time, sir? I'm a colonel. Okay. I, I've completed brigade command. And, uh, you know, I think I signed in and actually started on uh, – it's like 6 September, and a couple days later, we're attacked. We're locked into the the operations center for 90 days, you know, and uh, we're creating things like Northern Command and Homeland Security right there because there was none, and, uh, and we're figuring out and we're about to go to war. And I was there for, for three years, and, and so that means, you know, by the time we launched in Afghanistan and by the time we launched into Iraq, you know, this colonel's thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to miss this war. Holy crap. I got to get my boots in the dirt and get, you know, be a part of this. And uh, now, and, why did you think you were going to miss it? Because it was going to happen so fast. Yeah. Well, you know, in in, uh, in our lifetime, Grenada was about four days. Right. Yeah. It was, <laughs> was about 21 and, and Desert Storm was 100 hours. And so, you know, they're thinking, I don't know what this one's going to be, but. I'd sure like to get there. And then it turns out that uh, I had more time to <laughs> little did we know to, to use than than, uh, than I ever thought. That. So I was fortunate to be assigned as a, a one star in the 82nd Airborne Division and then to go forward with the uh, 18th Airborne Corps um, on a first yet short about four month uh, time in, I think, 2005 in the summer of five. Yeah. Your first time you hit the ground in Iraq, do you have any preconceived notions about what you're going to see? I mean, you, you know, again, you saw Somalia, you saw kind of, you know, the depravity of war and certain things, or at least read the reports on it, saw pictures, things of that nature. But do you know what you're walking into when you hit the ground in Iraq? What a great question. Um, and here's why. You know, 
all of our training and, and education and life experiences bring us to a certain level. And, and so when I walked in there, I thought I'm behind, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a general officer, but, but these guys have been, some of these guys are, are on their 11th or 12th month. And what you find out is, uh, and therefore I, you know, I'll be lacking. I, I'm, I may not be able to contribute the way I, I think I should. And then you find out that no, actually they're great young officers and they still need to be developed. The biggest thing that I saw time and again is that leaders arrive in combat and they still need to be developed and they still need to develop their teams. They still need them to personally grow. They still need to make sure everyone's taken care of. They still need to be thoughtful in the way that they fight their fights. And so I found that, Oh, actually, you know, I'm, I'm much more experienced than all these brigade commanders and I can be a big help to, uh, to them as they go through and uh, control their battle space. Do you get a sense of what the fighting is like and whether we are, you know, again, you talk about combatives making us better prepared. Are we prepared for the fight that we're in? Well, initially, um, the, uh, the gear that we went to war with and the gear today are vastly different. Yes. It speaks it speaks volumes to how uh, leaders like General Cody and 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 the innovation and, and uh, the stand up of organizations to like Jaido that joint uh, uh, IED uh, uh, directorate. You know the, these these teams of, of scientists and experts to figure out how to defeat um, how the enemy was fighting. So so. <clears throat> So, you know, we went with, with thin skinned Humvees across the berm because that's what we did in 91. And so now here we are in 2003 in April. And, uh, and then guys are getting slat armor and just welding it or tying it to the zip, you know, and, uh, and so by the time I got there, we, 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 you know, collected up all the up armor Humvees in the world and sent them. And, but then shortly thereafter, you know, industry, and America's might was turning uh, better vehicles. And then we had to respond with V hold, you know, uh, vehicles and MRAPs, mine resistant vehicles, because the, because everyone adapts, the enemy adapts, we adapt. And so, the, so I think it, uh, the other way to look at it is, um, especially in Iraq, you know, at every commander who came in, he probably fought a different war than the previous commander. So it's across the berm. It was moment of truth year before um, we lost control to the insurgents. And then we, the insurgents, uh, you know, uh, proliferated the towns and villages. So then we, we began a counterinsurgency and then we got out into the villages and all that with the surge. So, so each time that took, but you think about most of the army, um, went into Iraq on the first tour. Most of it probably had iron sights on their weapons. Yep. And then, and then in no time we had, you know, lasers, optics, and, and, uh, and night vision for, for everybody. And that, that just speaks to, to a positive to how the industrial army took care of the troops. I'm curious, sir. Um, and give me a moment here to kind of put the, this whole mm-hmm. thought together because I, I want to get your viewpoint because as a, as a, as a general officer, you, you, typically operate at the 30,000 foot view. You know, you're not the Joe on the ground where the rubber meets the road. That's just the nature of of the way our organization is structured. You can't help that. Sure, you can go down there time to time, but you don't spend every day there. It's not practical, nor is it necessary. But, you know, I remember, as you talked about, the constant back and forth that we went through from, you know, tactics, techniques, and procedures. How, and I remember, you know, it was, you know, when, when the IEDs, when I got there in 2005 and they started to ramp up, you know, people were welding iron on the bottom of the Humvees. Well, then they became too slow. And then they had guys up in the turret worried about shrapnel. And they had them ducking down. And then they put an arm out in front of the Humvee to try to set the tripwire off ahead of time. And back and forth and round and round we go. The enemy adjusted, we adjusted. Back and forth, round and round we go. And so, you know, I can recall things that had happened to me and firefights and everything that we get into. And it's not that I ever felt like I was unprepared, but I always began to wonder, you know, as you learn more going through your deployment, you get more experiences and things happen. You know, you're sitting here, you're trying to develop your own way to keep yourself alive, essentially. And regardless of what manuals say and what, you know, uh, lessons learned are, 
you know the lay of the land where you are on a daily basis, and you are better equipped at that point to keep yourself alive than anybody in your position at 30,000 feet can tell you. That said, how do you go about bridging that gap? Because you're charged with making sure the people on the ground have what they need, and they are protected, and they can fight the fight that they're in, and they can win the fight that they're in, and we have a decided advantage. But bridging that gap takes time, and sometimes you don't have that time in combat. Yeah, um, really great question because the uh, you know everyone wants on the team everyone wants to play shortstop right but you need right fielders and left fielders and catchers and stuff sure and so in Iraq which is a, a relatively contained uh, battle space it's easy for everyone to see something at the same time and someone at at uh, two or three or four levels up trying to be involved and helping the platoon leader fight that fight. Now, in some cases, that's great. They scramble jets, they scramble attack helos, but at that point, it's got to be handed over to the commander on the ground to fight. And so um, at that 30,000-foot level, the best in the world that it was General Lloyd Austin, in, in keeping his staff, of which I was, I was a one-star and a two-star underneath him, and then a three-star underneath him in my final tour in Iraq. And, uh, and keeping us both time-wise, you know, what are we going to need in August? Let's, let's get it now. If we, if we know that if we put our, our men and women at the right place in the right, uh, with the right gear and the right, right, uh, battle ratio, we know we're going to win that. So now what's going to roll out of that? So he got ahead of the curve and, and then we became helpful. So he could help General Shampo or he could help General Castlin or he could, he could help General Bolger. Um, you know, um, with the, with the stuff that they needed when they needed it rather than get the call and then have a 60 day lag. So each one, you know, so in other words, everyone wants to go walk the battlefield every single day, but they have to do their part first. On the other hand, you know, I drove almost every street in, in Iraq with my, my guys and, and with battalion brigade commanders, company commanders, many of whom went through those basic courses when, when I was the brigade commander, many of those who were the captains that I sent out to the divisions, you know, when I was the brigade commander. So it was a personal relationship between me and, and those guys. And I was able to watch, admire, and, and, um, and, and learn from them as walking patrols or riding, riding out to see them and, and, uh, and, and understanding the battle space and then go back and do our job. So we had a really good team with, with, uh, 18th Airborne Corps and then later the multinational force. Were you ever impressed or shocked, or I'm not sure what the adjective is, but from your first deployment to your second, how much things had changed? Um, did any of that you know, take you back or surprise you? Any, find the right word for me, sir, but whatever it is, I mean, you know, your reaction to how much things had changed, I suppose. Well, yeah, the, uh, the second one was a 15-month tour from... Uh, 2008 to mid-2009. Um, and um, when we arrived, we thought we would defeat al-Qaeda in the north, sustain the victories of the surge in central Iraq, and create civil capacity in, in agriculture, rule of law in the south. In the first month, the uh, Iranian-backed militias in the south attacked. And so we were in a big fight down there. And so what, what, what that taught me is the plans are good ones and it'll give you the fundamentals, but then you, you're going to have to respond and, and then you're going to have to take leaders who've all done their, their train ups to get to where they think they're going and tell them, you, you know, you're moving in 24 hours south to fight in the streets of Bosworth kind of thing. So, so to me, the, the things that, uh, will always pay off is leaders who, who are agile and innovative and creative and trust each other and, um, and are fit and are tough. And then the other things, um, can either impede, you don't have everything you need or they can enhance. You have some really high speed stuff. Um, so we would see the gear change, but not, not the nature, not the nature of war. It, it was still about, you know, 18 to 25 year olds who believe in each other that are going to fight for, for those guys in that squad. Your final deployment in, in Iraq, 2011, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I was there for it as well. Uh, and this is just one, you know, 
at that time, one major staff major's opinion. Um, and I it was five years between my deployments. I was there 05 to 06, and then the second one mm-hmm. was 2011. Mm-hmm. So I had seen just a dramatic change. And, and not only just the lay of the land in the country, but just the operational environment was completely different. And I, I always tell people, you know, that second deployment, I, I kind of hated. And I hated it because we went there to leave. And yeah. that was the general, like, I'm 05 to 06, I'm running around through the streets of Baghdad, my hair on fire for 15 months, and, you know, trying to stay alive, but loving life in a sense. You know, you're, you're at the pinnacle of your career. I always look back on that deployment as the best part of my 19-plus years as I continue on. But that second deployment, it was just, we went there to leave, and I almost began to sit there and wonder, as we were leaving, what did we really accomplish? Now, I know diplomatically and, and when you talk about, uh, uh, you know, the, the kind of uh, higher level, you know, of, of things that we, we try to achieve and the goals that we try to achieve may be different. But when you look at the ground level, you almost saw a lot of stuff that had gone backwards. A little disheartening, but understanding that, you know, for as long as we were at it, it was, it was probably bound to happen. But when you look at the course of your three deployments there, and you and, and you just look at what we set out to accomplish in the objective. How do you grade what happened? Yeah, that's. A, I have a friend named Chuck Otterstedt who I play golf with back in 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 the day. Chuck's at, around Fort Bragg, lives there, and great guy, really great friend. And I'd hit a golf ball, and I'd say, "Hey, Chuck, you think that ball just went in the water?" And he'd say, "Hey, sir, uh, too close to call." <laughs> which meant which meant it's in the water but when i'm asked this question i always say it's too close to call you know sure um you know the thoughts connecting thoughts are this i grew up in an army family and we lived in berlin and as long as we lived in berlin the soviets didn't have it and as long as we have american presence and somewhere in the middle east like that then the persians don't have it simple and and uh so strategically um there's a payoff for the, you know, seven plus thousand men and women killed and the 27 to 30,000 wounded badly. Really tough, you know, really tough to tell, look in the eyes of their loved ones and say it was absolutely worth it. It's just tough. And, uh, and so I'd go back to some, something I sort of said is, you know, Hey, America, you're lucky you have these kind of men and women because they will answer the call. And they will not question um, until they have time to sit back with a delicious IPA and uh, and their reunions and talk about their best friends and talk about what do you think? What was it worth it? And and you know, 2020 hindsight gives a lot of different views. But uh, you know, we 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 answered the call. I think that's the significant part of being a soldier or a military member and uh, fought with distinction. And, you know, if you think of, we had a, a few mishaps, but if you think of the number of man hours, soldier hours, marine hours and on the ground and then, and, and how the level of integrity, uh, the level of courage and the level of, uh, character that was shown, the, the few number of any kind of, you know, atrocities, if you want to use that or war crimes, if you want to use that or mm-hmm. just, you know, misbehaving, it's, you know, that that's where I where I place my focus and my pride on those guys because you know you know my son Dan is on his twelfth combat tour and he's in Afghanistan today. My son Patty is an Army Ranger and um, he's he's got ten. My son-in-law Garrett has six or seven. My daughter even has one. So you know America answered the call and and when we say what do you think? I, I think it's too close to call, right? And we'll go up to the water and look and see if the ball's in or if it held up and still got a shot at the grave. Yeah. And something like this, or, you know, winning or losing it, it's not binary, right? Like you can't yeah. call a win or a loss because, you know, for people who, who walk the turf and, and live through the, the war and, and survive combat, that's always a win for them. It doesn't matter strategically what happened. That's a win for them. You know, you bring all your troops home, that's a win. Um, and, and from that standpoint, I could say that I won, but I'm not charged with the strategic level decisions. You know, yeah. as, as a, as a mid-grade captain, you know, in Iraq on my first deployment, my job was to, was to work in my battle space, bring everybody home safe and accomplish mm-hmm. the mission. And from that standpoint, it's a win. I did my piece of the pie and, how are the, how the how the other pieces fall I really have no control over but I'm always curious when I talk to people who look at the whole pie and are judged by the whole pie uh it's obviously a different viewpoint so uh I, I agree with your sentiment that too close to call but um 
you know, some people have strong feelings one way or another, uh, you know, as far as the, the, the strategy behind it and whether we accomplished everything we were supposed to. Um, let's, uh, let, let's get towards the, the end of your career. Now, look, 35 years uh, at this point in time, uh, you, you are reaching almost mandatory retirement. Well, I guess when you're a general, you don't get mandatory retirement anymore. But how do you know your career is over? Yeah, so I, I came back um, from Iraq and um, – Actually, when I was in Iraq, General Dempsey came over there and, and he said uh, he knew me from uh, he commanded TRADOC training and doctrine command as a four star when I commanded Fort Benning underneath him as a two star. So we had a great relationship. And he said, what do you think you want to do next? And I said, oh, so that's easy. I want to be uh, the commanding general of 18th Airborne Corps. And he said, you know, that's perfect, but you're not going to do that. And I said, Oh, okay. He said, what else? I said, well, <laughs> I got a lot of joint time, NATO time, you know, um, a lot of time in combat. I could be the, the J3 of the joint staff. And he said, or the G3 of the army. He said, you know, you'd be perfect for that, but you're not going to do that. And then I said, well, you know, I got a lot of time as a ranger, so I could be the USASOC commanding general of the United States Army Special Ops Command, know everybody, know the business, been here in combat. I'd be perfect. He said, I didn't even think of that, but that is perfect. But no, nope, you're not going to do that. <laughs> and and he said, what do you think about commanding uh, the U.S. Army Installation Management Command, all the all of the bases around the world? And I said, I could be 18th Airborne Corps. <laughs> and, so, and so I said, hey, sir, I, you know, I grew up in an Army family. Margie and I raised an Army family. The Army's always been good to us. And if you want me to take care of Army families, then I'm I'm your man. And so I reported to both the Pentagon and um, San Antonio. I was still had it as an Army staff officer called the Assistant Chief of Staff for Installations, and I was the Commanding General of Installations, and and said, "Okay, let's get let's get fired up." And I took over a command that was kind of beleaguered and felt beat up. And I said, "You know what? We are going to love this, and we're going to we're going to know that every day we slam the car door and run to the office because." We're serving soldiers and their families. And we had a pretty good run at it. $12 billion a year budget, 120,000 employees, 75 bases, and 17 time zones. Well, uh, $12 billion budget. And in two years, we took $2.9 billion out of the budget. We transformed everything. Um, and we made the work, the workforce feel like a thousand, you know, like a million dollars. And, and I think we did a damn good job of taking care of our families and their soldiers especially at the trail end of, of combat. And then uh, um, to answer your question, so at about, you know, at the end of the first year, I asked uh, the leadership what's next. They said, well, we're looking at a few things. And then well, sometime around a year and a half, they said, we don't think we have anything else for you. And that's the way it works. You know, so for all you young listeners out there, you know, Start with your your faith and your family, your friends and your integrity, because someday you're going to leave and it won't necessarily be exactly when you're ready for it. And so I thought, I, I can do so much more. But the Lord is really our assignment officer and it puts you where you need to be. And uh, um, so I retired in June of 2014. I started a leadership company uh, called the Ferreter Group, and uh, we did more than 40 Two seminars using jujitsu as a model for for life, teaching women empowerment, high school kids, uh, sexual assault prevention, and uh, and then also using them as team builders for offsites for big companies. And then you know you you say you're a paratrooper and a ranger, and everyone says thanks for your service. You say you ran a Fortune 500 company called Imcom. You become a consultant. And so I did a lot of <laughs> consulting work for people. And mostly, Margie and I said, we'll work with men and women of character who like each other and want to work with the military and help our, our families or our soldiers. And we, and we found some scoundrels, and we just turned our back on them. Um, but we helped out a lot of companies that helped our guys and girls on base. And then one day, May 11th last year, my phone rang. And someone said, how would you like to be the president and CEO of the new National Veterans Memorial and Museum? And at the time, I was a finalist to be the new secretary of the VA and uh, had previously, along with Mike Lennington, 
uh, interviewed to be Wounded Warrior Project. So a couple of good things just about came. And then uh, the folks here in Columbus asked me to come and visit. I did. And they asked me to come back and they offered the position. And so 87 days later, we opened up the brand new National Veterans Museum here in Columbus, Ohio, and, and uh, have a magnificent team, a iconic architecture. And it tells the story, just like you and I have told today, of what it is to be uh, a service member and how life after can be significant as well. Lots to unpack. Let me let me back up a second uh, as you kind of get to the end of your career. Um, sure. You know, you, you had so much experience with guys on the ground, right? Training hard and doing all that stuff. And part of this actually is a personal question for me. Um, because as a battalion commander now, I've had to learn this lesson. But as you move up in, in rank, uh, we just talked about before, you kind of get away from the ground level. You know, being the fact that you had had so much time with guys, training side by side and doing all that stuff, and, and as you move up, you get away from that, you know, it, how do you reconcile not being there anymore? I mean, do you just get used to it from the standpoint of this is what the Army needs me to do and – you know, I, I can't spend the time that I want to down. I mean, because I miss that. Like, part of me just misses, you know, being mm-hmm. a, a commander on the ground and training and spending time with Joe and 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 working hard and getting dirty and all that stuff. I mean, you know, that that's that's kind of uh, happy as a pig and you know what, as they say, because that's kind of what you signed up to do at, at the outset. So when you spend so much time away from that, do do you miss that, or is it just kind of become routine? Well, I think I think. Um, to- well, certainly I miss it, um, but I don't dwell on it. You know, you, it, and, and then, you, you know, you can live the joys of it uh, as well by, you know, seeing that these guys all made battalion command. They, they were all your children, so to speak, or um, these guys that have made uh, general officer, flag officer, and, and we know that they're, they're really solid and they'll take it to the next level. And then you invest in something else. You know, you invest yourself in some other form of, of, uh, helping people and, and doing, you know, uh, you know, great things, you know, doing triathlons, you know, doing jujitsu, working out, you know, twice a day if you can. And so you still get that kind of adrenaline junkie rush. And then, um, there are, there are plenty of opportunities, um, for retired folks to be a part of things. Like I have a veteran advisory committee here and we're, we're pulling people in for that. Or MCOM has a gray beard, you know, committee in that, and we meet once a year and help the, the standing, uh, command, commanding general see things. But I like to remind everyone as well, you know, remember that day when they folded that flag and they gave it to you and said, thank you very much for your service. So remember that day when you hand over the guide on or hand over the colors to the next guy, let them run the race. So you, you can miss it. You can, you can watch from afar and be proud and, and then, Go, go get busy somewhere else is kind of the approach I take. It's interesting you talk about feeling like you have more to do. I tell everybody as I approach 20 years, and I don't have any designs on getting out at this point unless the government tells me they don't need me anymore. But mm-hmm. you know, I was remarking to a couple of guests on the podcast that I didn't really ever think that there wasn't going to be a time when I wasn't going to be able to do this, right? Like they tell you as a lieutenant, you know, all the lieutenant colonels and colonels, oh, 20 years goes by in the blink of an eye, and you're sitting there as a young, you know, punk lieutenant going, what the hell are you talking about, 20 years? I can't imagine 20 weeks from now, let alone 20 years. And then I look back and I say to myself now, like, what the hell did 20 years ago? And I start to realize there's going to be a time where I can't do this anymore. Like, the government's going to say, thank you. We don't need you anymore. So, like, I always, it's always, I was telling my parents, I'm like, the Army's been part of my life for over half of the time I've been alive. Like, I, I don't know really a world without it. And part of me wants to deploy one more time. Like, I just kind of want to get in the fight one more time, almost like an athlete who wants to make one more run at a championship, right? Like, it's like, I, I really just want to experience that rush one more time before I, I'm forced to hang it up and say goodbye. Um, did you ever have that feeling and that thought? Um, you know, one thing, one thing happened when I was, uh, at commanded general staff college <clears throat> and uh, we had a, a four star, um, you, you, they run a match if, if you're, if, if they still do, but you know, every other week, every third week, there's some general and we all go into the giant auditorium and, and some guy gives us a speech on something. So this guy steps up there and he, he says, you know what happened this morning before I came up here? He said, the chief of staff of the Army call, called me or I had to call him. And he told me 
that I was going to retire in in four months. And, and this gentleman looked at us. He said, I just found this out. I am in no way ready. And uh, and so, um, you know, I, I, I sat there and looked at this guy. Looked, I was close enough to look him in the eyes. And I thought, wow, you know what? Every one of us is going to leave. And so that kind of set the tone, set, you know, was a precursor to there'll be a day. So now how do I set the conditions so that I leave on my terms? And, and my terms were I didn't want to be an old, you know, pissed off, crotchety general. I, I didn't want to be – you see them all the time. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> I, I should have been this and I got screwed by that. If only we hadn't done this. Hey, get over it, you know. And so I didn't want that. And, uh, and, I, and I didn't want to be – and, and we had some tough calls, and especially in, in the last job at, with Imcom, with you know, the bureaucracy uh, trying to push my people around and trying to, you know, get in the way and just some horrible command uh, lines of operation during that time. And 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 so I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't I wasn't going to negotiate my integrity or, or my belief in doing what's right. And I stood up to some very senior people. And and uh, to say you know we'll get this we got it we'll be all right and uh, and so with the, from that 1991 moment or 1990 moment to you know to the time when I said okay well let's set the date for for June and uh, and retire that date you know about six months in advance you know I think I was ready I, at least mentally knowing that that day would come I would hoped that it wouldn't come at that point I I would have hoped to um, you know, I, to be retiring, still, uh, you know, busy and making things happen in uh, the summer of, of 2019 at my 40th. But but that's not what was in the plan. And so, you know, um, not a lot of time looking in the rearview mirror if you want to make things happen. We talked a lot uh, here about how much, you know, training has changed, tactics have changed, uh, you know, over the course of your career. How has leadership changed? Because... Dynamic leadership now uh, is so much different than what it used to be. As a younger, newer crop of soldiers, airmen, Marines, you know, Coast Guard entered the military, um, it, it, leadership is challenged now more than ever with a whole bunch of different things they were never challenged with before. So when you, and I know it's a really overarching question, sir, but, you know, obviously over the course of 40 years, what have you seen from the military and, and the way leadership has changed and, and how much better are we now than we used to be? I think that, there's a little bit of both. I think, um, uh, first of all, leaders have to, they really have to uh, understand, um, that, that the heart and the soul of the soldier that shows up in front of them, generation after generation, it's going to be pretty close to the same. But the difference is the start point. And so, you know, um, so leaders that wring their hands today and say, oh, they're not as hard as we were and they're, and they're all millennials and they want to greet their, you know, you just got to establish standards and, and then you got to, you got to lead them from, from the front and you've got to hold them. You know, all units have standards and great units enforce them. So there's, there are some that just say, you know, um, this is a, an environment where I can't, I can't be hard on them. Just be hard on the standard is what I tell people. Don't worry about being hard on soldiers. The standard makes it hard. Number two, um, one thing that, that, uh, is different is, um, the, the amount of information that leaders have by way of information technology and smartphones and all of that. And, you know, if I asked, you ask anyone in my ear, you know, who's better, you know, Willie Mays or, or Mickey Mantle, you'd see us thinking, you know, if you ask my sons or son-in-law or, or a troop, you know, they'll go to their smartphone and look at their stats. You know? <laughs> you know, and so, so if you, you know, if you bring it up to speed and say, was LeBron better than Michael Jordan? They'll go to stats rather than, you know, think and feel. So that, so, and then it's easy for them to, to think that that's reality. Um, so, so getting, Leadership has to be, um, it's got to be listering close. It's got to be felt and delivered uh, in person. Um, a great leader named Francis Hesselbein says leadership is who you are and management is what you do. And so leaders have to know who they are and then improve daily, take care of the little guy, build teams, never quit. You know, th- those things are what leaders need to do. 
and everything else is a tool that might help or hinder them. Sir, you mentioned, uh, you know, everything you did at IMCOM and how you literally impacted, you know, soldiers and families, their lives and, and their everyday work environments, uh, you know, combatives, how much you impacted soldiers and everything else. Do you ever think about your legacy or how do you characterize it? I, I know you also mentioned that the, the kind of the, the kids in the military grew up to be battalion commanders and brigade commanders and things of that nature. That's part of your legacy as well. I mean, what, does anything stand out more than the other to you? Does anything mean more than the other to you? Wow. Um, very interesting question. The If someone were to say to me, you and Margie were the best military family that we ever saw, that's more important than someone saying you were the most courageous battalion commander that we ever saw or you impacted the Army in a way that people won't realize for five years, 10 years. So at the beginning of it all, you know, it's, it's the who we were that mattered the most and how you know, awesome our kids and their, their spouses are, partners are, and they all have dogs and they all have houses also. So that's good too. So I think that's first, but you know, um, a couple guys that, that, uh, you know, you know, uh, Mike Garrett, Steve Townsend was my S3. Mike was off a company commander and a staff officer, you know, they got, you know, I had to do across the board division level. Um, you know, Mark O'Neill, company commander underneath me. Um, Eric Carilla, company commander underneath me, you know, so I, I just had great people around me, but they also, um, were probably touched a little bit and then they were touched by Frank Kearney and they were touched by others and, you know, it's our legacy is who, who we served with and who we took care of and how they've grown. But we didn't, we weren't the only one that touched them, I, would, I guess I would say. But yeah, I'd rather, I, I, my legacy would be, uh, hard and dependable. And, uh, that, that'd probably be what I would want people to think about. Well, again, and, and part of the reason I asked her, as I mentioned, you know, I, I am a beneficiary of part of the legacy that you created and whether, you know, it, it's important to you or not. I, I can tell I train and I, I work with a better force now because of things like combatives and because of uh, of where we are um, from the lessons learned that, that people at the 30,000 foot view have brought forward. So from that end, you know, it's, it's a personal thank you. But, you know, speaking just in general terms, you know, those of us who uh, have the fortunate pleasure of uh, being in the military still that you left an impression on big, big, smaller and different means that there is a legacy there. So for that, you know, again, a personal thank you, but certainly uh, the audience understands uh, wh- where we are uh, as far as the leaders in front of us and how much they shape the formation for the future. So just wanted thank to you. share that. Yeah, thanks a lot. I, I appreciate those thoughts. Well, on that note, sir, it's been an incredible career. It's an incredible story. Um, tell us real quick about the Ferreter Group, what you guys do, and, and uh, you know, if companies or anybody wants to get in touch with you, how they go about doing it. Yeah, so so the Ferreter Group is is uh, the the second part of my life right now, and the first part is, is being the CEO of of the National Veterans Memorial and Museum um, right here in Columbus, and then so that's that's uh, the main effort. The supporting effort is the Ferreter Group. Um, if you need um, some form of of uh, you know, we do police street street tactics so we can get them to control people with their hands instead of pulling a gun on a pistol on a teenager we do women empowerment all kinds of seminars number two consulting if someone wanted to connect to to the military and they don't know how to get into the the gates so cell phone companies work with me um on november 9th we're going to do uh hiring fairs at 10 top golf. So top golf has, has hired us to put on these hiring uh, fairs for our vets. Um, so if, if you're interested in being one of those companies, contract us at the Um, and just so many other things that, that, uh, anyway, that, you know, when someone says, what is, what's, what do we do at the Ferreter group? Our answer is we help. And so if you need help, contact us. Great stuff, sir. Thank you again so much for your time and sharing your story with us. And most of all, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I'll see you soon, no doubt. 
You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Headlines and hot takes, they have their place. But at our podcast, ESPN Daily, we don't just skim the surface of sports. Dude, I mean, this clearly transcends blood feuds, <laughs> rivalries, sports. This is something far, far deeper than that. I'm your host, Pablo Torre. And every day, we try to dive into the stories behind the athletes. The picture of him in the dugout afterwards just looked like a guy who'd had his heart ripped out. Listen to ESPN Daily wherever you get your podcasts.